Mindfulness Mode 98. The faster you let go of judgment, the faster you become truly mindful. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Hey, thanks for being a supportive Mindful Tribe member by listening to Mindfulness Mode podcast. We're leading up to our 100th episode, which will feature a very special guest who has focus and mindfulness nailed. To celebrate, I'm sending out free Mindfulness Mode coffee mugs to the first five people who jump on this offer. Just sign up for our free meditations at mindfulnessmode.com slash focus. And then reply in an email with coffee mug in the subject line. Be sure to include your address so I can send it out to you. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Alex Charfin on the line today. Hey, Alex, are you in mindfulness mode? I try to live there, Bruce. Super. Alex Charfin has been working since he was eight years old. He sold his first company when he was 16 and another one when he was 21. After dealing with financial challenge due to the economic downfall in 2008, Alex and his wife Katie founded a system to help homeowners in crisis called Certified Distress Property Expert, CDPE. This massively successful venture has helped 6 to 10 million homeowners facing foreclosure. Charfin, the company behind CDPE, grew quickly and appeared on the Inc. magazine list of fastest-growing private companies in America three years in a row, reaching as high as number 21 in 2011. Charfin is now a leading training and consulting organization. Alex uses mindfulness and meditation daily to maintain his edge and continue his momentum. So, Alex, let's start with this. What does mindfulness mean to you? I think that becoming a transformational leader is, um, is the way to live a transformational life. And in order to be either or to have either, you have to have mindfulness, which, you know, in our content, we, we refer to as present, just being present. And I think that there's a lot of things said about what it takes to become someone who can lead people or someone who can um, stand in front of a room and command a room. But I think when you sum it up, those are people who are present. They, um, they are transformational because they are aware. They're in the moment. And uh, I think that, that's what mindfulness means to me. Well, I definitely agree. Like to be in the moment, people are going to pick that up about you. And I've definitely picked it up about you, Alex, that's for sure. Alex, would you tell Mindful Tribe, what inspired you to begin living in the present? And like, was there some specific thing or was it something about your childhood? Tell us how you got into this. Man, that's a that's an interesting question. I don't think there's a clear path as to how I, I discovered this. You know, at this point, we have hundreds of thousands of words on co- of content about how the you know people like you and I can become more present can can live a transformational life. I don't know where it started. You know, I think when you look at my background, you mentioned that I had been an entrepreneur since I was 8. I I I've worked since I was 8. And since I was very young, I knew I was different. And um, I, I feel like I've always experienced a higher level of pressure and noise than most. I always wanted more. I felt like I was pushing harder. I felt like the rest of the world often was standing still. And I didn't understand why. And that created 
um, huge distraction for me. And so the journey of awareness started when I was very young and the journey of trying to understand, you know, the present and getting into the present started when I was very young. I, I studied a number of religions. Um, I went and studied meditation. I did yoga. I, I mean, I've, you know, seen just about every type of specialist that there is. And it's interesting because that, that quest of going and trying everything, what you really realize is, you know, or what, what, what that culminated in is the understanding that in order to truly become present, you need nothing. And so it's been an, it's been a really interesting journey from, from, from a very young age, but I don't know that there's ever been a switch that I flipped and said, Hey, this was important. But I can tell you that the older I get and the more experience I have, I'm 43 now, the more I believe that our level of success is directly related to our ability to be in the moment. And in my, my background, I've had some really phenomenal and, and unbelievable opportunities. I've spent time around people who move the world around like chess pieces, billionaires. I've had several of my friends go from somewhat humble means to ascend into billionaire status in this lifetime, and I've been there up close and personal to watch it. And what I can tell you is there's a lot of people who make a lot of money but don't experience true success. Um, and there's a lot of people who show a lot of results but don't really experience true success. Success is when you have all of those things. You can still be in the moment, present, be happy with where you are, be uplifted with where you are, and have a positive effect on the people around you. That's what true transformational leadership is. And so, um, you know, that's, that's my take on it is it's, it's a daily uh, it's a daily discipline that I, I work on to be present. Well, I really like what you said about this, Alex. And I want to go back to when you were seven or eight years mm -hmm. old and you were so motivated to, to work or to earn money. What kind of work did you do? What was your life like back then? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, Bruce. I, I don't know that I was ever really motivated to just make money. Um, when I was younger, I was different than most kids, like dynamically different. I, I, you know, I was the behavioral disorder, um, all kinds of different stuff. I, um, I was so different that I, you know, I isolated, I read, I tried to, to figure things out on my own. And the more I went and I read about you know, how to be successful. And I read the stories of people who were successful. I went out and I read it and I found that people were like me. They were different and unique and they were treated differently. And so for me, that, that early, um, you know, that early exploration, it wasn't just about making money. I think that for so many entrepreneurs and for so many people who see the world like I do early in life, it's confusing and the first time you see money or commerce, for me, I was drawn to it. It was like there was, a, there, was a, there was a system that created some order where the rest of the world had chaos. Well, that is really cool that, you, that we've got that straightened out. It wasn't about money. It was about something else. It was about moving forward or success. Uh, so what did you do when you were eight years old? <laughs> I worked with my father. So I, my dad, my dad lost a business. He didn't go bankrupt, but he lost a business when I was younger. And we ended up, we worked in the swap meet. I used to sell stuff over a table. And from when I was eight until you know, my mid teens, and my dad still has that business today. 
And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of, a lot of people say, man, you're, you didn't have a childhood. You worked all weekend. You did this and, you know, got up at four 30 in the morning and I did all those things, but, but I, you know, I, I really appreciated it. I liked it. I liked spending the time with my dad. I liked working. It made me feel u- useful. So you were bonding with your dad during this time. A ton. You know, yeah. it's funny, Bruce. My, my daughter's outside of the, the door right now. I've got a 10,000-square-foot office here in Austin. Yeah. We have a big team. We throw events here. My 9-year-old works here every day. And she comes in. She, she works on her typing skills. She does some other stuff. She's kind of homeschooled, unschooled. But okay. she gets involved in projects. All, but she's been pushing for that since she was tiny. And I think that for some of us, it just kind of calls to you. And that's how it was for me. That's really cool. And so is she homeschooled by your wife, by Katie? Or do you homeschool her as well? Tell us about that. So we have two kids. Yeah. um, Kennedy and Reagan. They're six and nine. Yeah. And um, we've chosen to to unschool them. So, um, you know, I I, I struggled a lot in school. I didn't fit into the system. you know, I was told I was retarded, developmentally disabled. I had really? failure to thrive. Absolutely. Wow. I was in special. So I went from gifted and talent. I went from special education to gifted and talented back to special education in three years. Oh, that's crazy. I, um, yeah. No, I've, I've, I, I had all kinds of really crappy shit happen in school. And I, as a, you know, I, was, I was a behavioral disorder because I didn't filter. I always asked the questions. I always kind of like wanted to inquire and wanted to know what was going on. So as a result, school was horrible for me. And uh, I remember, Bruce, being in class. And so many people like me remember this. Like if you're listening, you remember mm-hmm. you were in class and you, you had something to say and you knew you shouldn't say it. And you knew it was going to like make shit happen and people would make fun of you or do something. And you're like telling yourself don't say it, but you say it anyway. And you just have to say it, right? You have to say it. I yeah. was that guy. You know? I hear you. Well, you know what? School wasn't created for you, Alex. It was created for other kinds of people. It was created for more mainstream or for people that maybe, you know, they were more average. You didn't fit into that box. Not even close. I mean, I think if you, if you read a modern history of education, school was created to create factory workers. Yes. And, um, and it does a good job. It has all the bells, the whistles, sure. the timing, the breaks. I mean, it's exactly like working in a factory, you know, in, in, and getting used to and accustomed to being a piece of a system. And um, so what we did, so, so we tried to put my kids into that, and it was, was terrible, Bruce. We right. put them into yep. a regular school for a little bit. They kind of fell apart. We pulled them out. Katie and I sat down, and we said, what's really important to us with this? You know, I think we get caught up in like, will my kids play sports? Are they going to have a prom? Are they going to do this? Are they going to do that? You know, the fact is I don't care about any of it. I really don't. My question is can my kids self-educate? And so we created a system where they self-educate. They have a teacher that comes in a couple times a week that we get to talk to. Um, They've set up activities. My youngest does all kinds of different stuff. My older one comes to the office a lot. They both have projects and stuff that they work on. And every time we check with the teacher, they're far ahead of where they would be in a normal school. And we're literally not driving a curriculum. Yeah. We're just letting them self-select. Oh, this is fascinating. I, I think it's just fantastic. Because you know what? They're probably just so grateful that they're not in that mainstream school setup, that they've got the opportunities that you're offering them. You know what's really, really happens, Bruce, is that if you get out of kids' way – there's no such thing as an unmotivated kid on the playground. There's a reason. They get to do whatever they want. And so, you know, the, the kid who's unmotivated and on a playground is being over-controlled and over-dictated somewhere else in their lives. Right. And, you know, the, the fact is today when we look at the system of school we, and we think about something like mindfulness, 
Here's the, here's the stated goal of the system is standardization. Standardization is good for wall outlets, not for human beings. Yes. You know, and we have this, this ridiculous system that crams people into a room, says, sit still, shut up, don't move, and tell us what we want to hear when we want to hear it. And then we wonder why kids hit 18 years old and don't do anything. We tell kids to sit down and shut up for 18 years, and then the second that they, like, you know, somehow graduate from this magical thing, we say, now go do shit. It's impossible. And, you know, the, the frustration level for me with, with the system is off the charts because the fact is you take a kid and you leave them alone, and they will go so fast it will make your head spin. And so that's what we're doing with our kids, and it's, it's completely changed things. Well, this is really cool to hear. And it sounds like probably Kennedy and Reagan are very mindful kids as well as a result of being given this freedom. You know, they notice things and they see things that other kids don't see. Because I think here's one of the challenges that we have, Bruce, is that I think anybody listening to this podcast is probably a lot like me. You want your kids to grow up with awareness and an understanding of the world. You know, I don't see my job as a parent as sheltering my children from what will happen. I see my, 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 my job, what I need to do is, is help them understand what happens and be able to come to terms with it. And when we look at this system today that we have called school, here's what happens. You know, we raise our kids and we tell them, hey, you're capable and you can do whatever you want. And, and you, you're special because I believe 100% both of my daughters are. Then we send them to this building where someone stands in front of them and they're incongruent. And they do incongruent things because you got to understand teachers, you know, there's a lot of good teachers out there. There's also a ton of shitty ones, terrible ones that are hurting kids that shouldn't be in a classroom. And somebody should say it because the fact is today that the systems that we have children in are producing double digit attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That's not genetics. That is a system that is so high on the constraint scale that it's much like a prison. We see the same behaviors in prisons that we see in school. Increased violence, increased sexual aggression, increased agitation, increased restlessness. We just label them differently. Instead of saying we have a system that is so constraining that kids are literally freaking out, now we say ADHD, which the translation is needs medication to sit still in class. And so – it, it, it's, it is the, one of the biggest travesties in society today is that we're sending kids into these buildings and pretending like it's okay. Yeah, it's sad. And, and the way you describe it, and you're so passionate about it, you know, it's true. We need to be encouraging creativity. We need to be encouraging kids to live in the moment and be who they are so that when they get older, they're going to be motivated to do what really charges them in their life. So, Alex, let's talk about meditation. Do you meditate I do. I do. But if you'd asked me that a year ago, I probably would have, or two years ago, I probably would have told you no. So tell me about that. How does it look? So um, meditation has been a long road for me, Bruce. I, I, I started this path when I was young. You know, I, I, one of the first books I ever got, or one of the first sets of tape I ever got was An Awakened Life with Wayne Dyer. Oh. So I used to, you know, really think about intention a lot and trying to understand the power of intention. But what happened was I went out trying to find what meditation was, and I, I overclocked it. I, I spent time in a Buddhist temple. I watched a guy stop his heart. Um, I watched people who meditated for hours and could get into these transcendent states. And so what I always thought I was doing was something on the periphery of meditation. Mm-hmm. And um, for years, I was helping 
executives and billionaires and people who are going into meetings like calm down in short periods of time, gain their focus almost immediately, um, come back to center and be mindful in a meeting. And what I didn't realize was the hallway conversations I was having with people to bring them back to present were really just two-minute meditations and these quick come back to center breathing and visualizations that didn't have to take too long. And so here's what's interesting about my journey with meditation. I went from the place where I was meditating like for hours at a time. Then I've, I've used every shortcut there is. I never really thought I was a good meditator until a couple of years ago. I realized that this is a practice that I've had my whole life and that it's something that not only am I good at, I've been helping other people with. And so we recorded um, three two-minute meditations that we used to use in our classes. Mm-hmm. One's a lung expansion meditation One's an awareness meditation and one's a calming meditation. And each one of them is only two minutes, Bruce. Okay. See, I think here's, here's what I think about meditation and, and where, we can, where we should really be focused is that meditation is not just sitting down for 45 minutes and doing the deep breathing and reaching another plane or another scale or another planet. Here's what meditation really is. It's creating contrast through the mindful breathing and disconnecting from the present so that we can be mindful within ourselves. And if we can do that within one minute or two minutes or 45 minutes, it's the same. It's still meditation. And so with people as busy as they are, they are today, even logging into a 10-minute meditation can be very difficult. But here's what I've done for years. If you take two minutes before the big meeting or two minutes before your call or for realtors, two minutes before your listing appointment and for a doctor, two minutes before you, your new patient meeting and you do a two minute awareness meditation with a four second in, four second out through the nose, a simple visualization. Here's what's nuts, Bruce. You can get an incredible amount of contrast in 120 seconds. That's meditation that works today. Well, that's, that's a different take on it. And I really appreciate you filling us in on that and your beliefs in it, because I think the problem is so many of us just don't even take 30 seconds. Don't even try. No, and don't even try. And so if you, if you search on Sharfen, C-H-A-R-F-E-N, SoundCloud, there's three meditations that we've put out for free. And, and Bruce, one of the things that someone, you know, anyone can do right now, you're finished this podcast, look it up. Plug in some headphones. And here's, here's an interesting way to do this. For so many of us, the first time you meditate, it's like, did anything happen? Yes. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So here's, here's what I want you to do. Take one of our two-minute meditations. And before you listen to it, take a quick read. Where are your shoulder muscles? Where is your chest? How, how much tension are you carrying? Where, how much pressure do you feel in your forehead? Quick read. Do a two-minute meditation and recalibrate those things. And what you'll find is that there will be contrast in as little as two minutes. You know that it worked. And if you can pause going into a meeting and do a two-minute awareness meditation, literally standing in the hallway by the elevator and walk in with a higher level of oxygenation, awareness, and presence, your whole life changes. So they, they work, Bruce. It's meditation's amazing, especially when you apply it tactically, not when you only try to reach these other planes of existence you know that's those are that's a, that's a place where i have difficulty i i these two you know plugging in two minutes getting an advantage and using it to create contrast that's been life-changing for me 
I think meditation is amazing. And I really <laughs> like how you're describing this. And, and of course, Alex, you have so much passion that I'm hearing in every word that you're telling us. So Mindful Tribe, listen to the passion that's going on here as Alex talks about this, because it's really working for him. But Alex, did you ever have a time when some of these mindfulness concepts were not working for you? I mean, you've shared your journey with meditation, but what about just, you know, the whole idea of living in now and, you know, being mindful? Did you ever kind of get fed up with it and think, ah, the heck with it? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's like anything else. Like people can kind of take this to an extreme too. Yes. You know, and, and I think that one of the things that we need to remember about mindfulness and meditation and that, you know, and, and, um, and all of this is that it's an individual practice. Yes, it is. You know, I think that one of the things that, that kind of got out of control in the past few years is authenticity. Uh-huh. Um, there were so many conversations about authenticity that I felt there was no way to have an authentic conversation about the subject, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know? And I think that mindfulness is something that you should judge for yourself and share with other people. But I think that far too often this becomes one of those things where it's like, Oh, well that person's not in the moment. They're not mindful. And you know, here's, here's what I want everyone to think about. Mindfulness and judgment are mutually exclusive. Right. And so where I've had a hard time is where other people have judged mindfulness or have thought that there was a way that, you know, we should look at it differently or it should have a higher level of examination or the people around them weren't mindful enough. Uh, The fact is, the faster you let go of judgment, the faster you become truly mindful. Wow, I love that you mentioned this because it is so important. Yeah, mindfulness, a huge part of it is not judging. Alex, take us back to 2008. I mean, you've had so many successes, but you've had a lot of challenges too. Along came 2008, and I'm sure you had a couple of days in that year that you could describe to us what it was like, what it was like going through the challenge of having everything pulled out from under you. Yeah, you know, I'd had a successful career as a consultant, Bruce. I'd worked with the Fortune 500, the Global 100. Katie, when I met my wife, I had sold that that organization and we had gone into real estate. And so we spent the early 2000s building a huge real estate fortune. We had become um, the largest single family home buyer and seller in South Florida. Uh, We were doing tons and tons of deals. We were a significant percentage of the market in some areas. Mm -hmm. Then 2007 hit and... um, we had a huge real estate portfolio and all of our income was coming from real estate and it just fell apart. And, um, gosh, it was, it was devastating, Bruce. Yeah, um, it must have been, you know, it's, it, I was, I, I was always, I'd always been successful and I'd put myself in tough positions, positions before, but when we decided we had to go bankrupt, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I, uh, you know, people don't understand how, how humbling that experience is. You know, I was, I've shared with you earlier when I was younger, I was told I was developmentally disabled. I was, you know, retarded, all those things. I can buy the buildings that they told me those things in today. Yeah. And a lot of my confidence and a lot of who I was came from being able to be successful. And so when it all came crashing down, it was, it was incredibly difficult. And how did you pull yourself back up? You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have my wife. Because I think every entrepreneur, you need to have that first follower, that person that supports you. And I think that's, I'm that for her and she's that for me. And, um, 
one of the things that Katie did, and this was a discipline she made us do, is each night we had to say what we were grateful for as we were going bankrupt, like the day that we decided we had to start doing this. And it changed things. We started sharing, like that, that discipline changed things. I'm not going to lie to you. Like this was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. I remember the day where all of our assets were in the bankruptcy. So the trustee can kind of tell you what he needs to do or what you need to do with your assets. And we've given them a list of everything we owned. And we didn't have a lot left. We'd sold a ton. We had to move, so we got rid of a ton. And the one thing that he was interested in was Katie's engagement ring. And so I had to take her ring off her finger for the first time since we got married, drive it from pawn shop to pawn shop in South Florida to get a fire sale price on it. And, um, you know, first, anybody who's been to a pawn shop, like, knows that they don't like anything like the one on TV. No. You know, and that sucked. Like, I remember going from shop to shop and thinking, like, this, you know, this, like, I I never thought I would be doing that. And um, that discipline that Katie had, and, you know, we looked at what we had done, and we started talking about where we were. And as we started getting foreclosure paperwork, because we were losing everything, we realized things weren't going to work the way that things were happening in the market. And the two of us sat down and we wrote a program called Certified Distressed Property Expert. And then we used kind of my consulting background and what I knew about building organizations to put it out there. And we went from bankruptcy in 2007 Mm -hmm. to having the fastest growing company in the 21st fastest growing company in the country in 2011. We trained 47,000 real estate agents, um, helped millions of homeowners, and the U.S. Treasury said we pulled forward the foreclosure crisis by at least five years. And it's interesting, Bruce, because what we do today, you know, training entrepreneurs how to scale businesses, how to understand themselves better, how to move forward, comes from so much of that. It's my consulting background. It's, it, you know, it combines in with, with so many of our clients from that time period asking us to help them grow and scale and really understanding how to help people move forward. Because here's, here's the difference between hyper-successful people and those of us who struggle is that hyper-successful people have a lot higher guardrails around what they will tolerate. They are vicious about what they will tolerate. They don't allow things to come into their lives that take them out of the present. They don't look at the wrong numbers. They don't talk to the wrong people. They don't waste time. They don't spend their time on things that that are not moving them forward. And so if we look at that in a discipline, that is the very essence of mindfulness. It's, It's that we refuse to tolerate when we do not create momentum. We refuse to tolerate when we're not moving forward. I really like what you said there, Alex, you know, because you've obviously used the the tools of mindfulness to keep momentum and to keep moving forward. So it's just great that you've been able to do that. You may know that I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for some time, and I know you had a challenging childhood. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? (laughs) I don't know, Bruce. I've got so many stories about bullying where I think that if we had a better system, it would have made a difference. I think, you know, the, the, um, I mean, let's, let's just call it what it is. You know, the, the fact is, is that we have this dressed up term called bullying Mm -hmm. to, to like, what is it really? It's terrorism. Kids are terrorized. They, they're, they're afraid for their lives. They don't know what to do. They're in a system where they don't really know how to respond. And, you know, we've, we've made it cute because we call it bullying. And I think that, you know, what, what 
when I look at my background uh, in grade school, I was beat up almost every day. I uh, I learned how to how to pretend like I had allergies so I could eat lunch and spend my my break periods inside so I wouldn't be around other kids. Um, you know, I think that when you when you look at the the system that kids are in, um, thirty prisoners and one guard doesn't work in a prison system and it doesn't work in the school. So why do you think you were beat up every day? Tell us about that. I think I was different, Bruce. I didn't have the same social skills that other kids had. I think I developed socially slower. I think I developed in- intellectually faster, which doesn't make for a cool kid. Okay. Um, you know, I I, uh, I didn't see the world the same way that other kids did. I didn't have a normal childhood compared to other kids. My we didn't watch cartoons at home. We didn't, you know, I didn't I didn't have all of that other stuff that made it so that you fit in. I don't necessarily think I I should have had any of that stuff. I'm just saying I wasn't like the other kids, and. Um, you know, I think when you look at the school system as it is, it, it is set up to take advantage of the weak. 30 prisoners, 30 prisoners and one guard, it's literally, it's set up to take advantage of the weak. So tell us what it was like a day in the life of Alex Charfin back there in elementary school. You know, and, and, and this, is, this is interesting, especially for those who are parents, because I've talked to a lot of kids, and I've also talked to my kids, and we've talked to, you know, I've interviewed a lot of kids that are homeschooled or that, that have experience in institutional education. I use that word on purpose, because mm-hmm. um, I don't think that there's a lot of difference between what we do in prisons and what we do in schools. And um, what, what ha- you know, and this is 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to the bus stop and being nervous about going to the bus stop because would I be made fun of on the bus that day? There were days where the cheers or the chants on the bus were all about making fun of me. So I didn't know if that was going to happen that day. Then I'd get to school and I'd try and get to inside or at least a corner that I could protect as fast as I could because I would be tripped or poked or punched or knocked over or something because it was easy for other kids. And when you're in a social system where there's very little supervision, those types of things happen. And then in class, depending on what year it was, I was either a good student or a terrible student. So both of those have their consequences. And, um, you know, that that and then during recess and lunch for my entire grade school career, junior high school, even high school, I found places to stay inside so that I wouldn't be exposed to the social situations that I was really challenged by. You and lots of other kids look for those opportunities. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You know, unfortunately, if you take a step back, it's difficult to make the argument that there's a massive difference between prison and school. Yeah. Alex, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? There's a lot of them. Uh, One person that's influenced my mindfulness practice. Probably my wife. Just by watching her and um, by because I think that she's the closest reflection that I have and it's helped me be more aware because when we have conflict, I often realize afterwards that I had more of a part in the conflict than I thought at the time and that constant check-in, that constant reflection of how much more responsibility I have than what I thought I did has created another level of mindfulness in the rest of my life. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Alex? Um, you know, I, I, I've learned how to ignore the rest of the world's judgment on emotion and pursue momentum. And I think that for most of us, you know, people that think like you and I do have a hard time with like happy, sad, frustrated, pissed off, ticked off, confused. We don't know the difference. And so for me, learning who I really was and getting a higher level of presence showed me that my life's motivation is to create momentum 
and forward motion and progress and innovation, not happiness. That's a bullshit term that works for someone else, not me. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. <laughs> I, uh, I think there's four pillars to, to becoming a transformational leader, breathing, hydration, nutrition, and movement. And I think most people would say I was crazy because I didn't name one thing about the, the, the functions of being a leader. But if you can breathe and you hydrate and you're supported nutritionally and you move an appropriate amount, you will be the most present person in the room. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would that be? You know, uh, Bruce, I, I think that a lot of the books on quote unquote mindfulness are confusing because they're written in present day and it was people who were actually trying to drive to this result called mindfulness. I don't, I don't know about that. I think that the way that you get there is through the right type of thinking that creates an awareness of who you are, where you are, and what you want to create in the world. And the book that did that for me more than any other is called The Highest Goal by Michael Ray. And he is um, the creator of the Stanford Creativity Course, which if you had a list of all the business icons that went through the Stanford Creativity Course, you'd blow people away. But, you know, Jim Collins and Bezos over at Amazon and um, Larry Ellison, and it's, it's insane who has checked into that course. I think one of the reasons is it follows the framework that's in the highest goal. It was life-changing for me. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? Yes, um, paper and pen. What advice would you give a person who's new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? Get away from electronics as much as you can and don't turn on a screen in the morning until you've had at least an hour or two of time to become present, plan your day, understand your intention for the day, and record where you were uncomfortable yesterday. That will take you out of the state of constant reactivity most human beings are in today. Great advice, Alex. Alex, it has really been a pleasure to talk with you today and have you share so many gems with Mindful Tribe. And man, you have really rocked it in this world. I mean, you've had ups, you've had downs, but you've just moved right on through and you've made it look from the outside as though, you know, you've, you're just so grounded, you're so focused. And I'm sure a lot of that is mindfulness. Alex, how can we connect with you and learn more about what you do? So my team just put this together, Bruce. We actually have a book that we wrote. It's the least selling book of all time, but we're giving it away. And um, it's, it's been this just revolution. It's called The Entrepreneurial Personality Type. And if you go to sharfin.com, C-H-A-R-F as in Frank, E-N.com forward slash free book, um, you can download that, read about the entrepreneurial personality type, which is the framework that our company has run on, and understand more about who we are and hopefully a lot more about who you are. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for the, the free gift. I'm sure we're going to really enjoy that. And just from the passion, I've mentioned it before, the passion that comes through as you talk about all these topics. Wow, no wonder so many people are focused on Charfin and what you're up to. So thanks so much for joining us here on Mindfulness Mode, Alex. Bruce, it was a ball. I really appreciate it, brother. Super. Take care. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Bye, Alex. 
Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.